if you're thirsty for coffee, uh, after the class, you can just stop by the parsonage and we'll make you a cup. <laughs> you just, I think I'll survive. You, you, you can come on over and help eat the leftover treats. And, hey, sure. We're, we're happy to have you for lunch. Anybody who wants to come over, okay? Uh, all right, so uh, let's just start with prayer. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, that by your protection we may be rescued from the threatening perils of our sins and saved by your mighty deliverance. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, whoops, that's the wrong thing. Uh, some of this is just gonna end up being review, but review is a good thing. This is the schedule for the rest of the year, and I wanna take just a little bit of time to talk about the schedule of how this class is gonna go. It's 13 weeks for sure, but maybe 14. We've got a buffer day there. We might use it, we might not, but knowing me, we probably will have to end up using it because we'll have to um, go back and recover some stuff or go over stuff I didn't get to. So um, there's dates here. Uh, we're two weeks on and three weeks off, uh, but then we'll get back in January uh, and, and finish everything up. The reason why this class isn't starting until the beginning of December with Advent is because ultimately for anybody in this class that's going towards adult baptism, uh, confirmation, first communion, uh, adult membership, or anything like that, um, all of those things tend to take place on Holy Saturday at the Easter Vigil. And that's the plan for this year. It's a big service, and it's the third service in what's called the Triduum, or the three-day service of Holy Week. That starts on Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then the Easter Vigil. Um, and if you pay really close attention to the liturgies of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, they don't end with a benediction. In fact, Good Friday doesn't even begin in the same way that Maundy Thursday does. It begins as if nothing ended the night before uh, because it's really, it starts on Thursday, it goes all the way through Friday on all the way through Saturday and the triduum, the three holy days don't end until the Easter Vigil. So the Easter Vigil is the, the Christians standing watch for the resurrection and it goes from the darkness of uh, Good Friday into the light and the joy and the Alleluia confession of Christ is uh, being risen. So the tradition then from the time of the church is that all of these big things, receiving the Eucharist, being brought into the community and being baptized, all of that takes place at the Easter Vigil so that on Easter Sunday when the whole church gathers together, everybody's all on the same page together for that big Easter celebration. Anybody who wanted to be a member for Easter, now you're a member. Anybody who wanted baptism, now you're baptized. Anybody who uh, wants uh, access to the Eucharist, now you're in and you get it for Easter and, and onwards. So it's a death and resurrection that's mirrored by the liturgy and by the confession of the church. So uh, that's sort of why we don't start it exactly where you think maybe we ought to start a class, but this gets us up until the point of the Easter Vigil without too much time off in between, so everything's still fresh. Um, there's two things then that I wanna talk about just about how the class has arranged, uh, because in many ways this is going to be a class that's not like other new member confirmation type classes. Uh, that maybe you're familiar with, especially if you're somebody who's born and raised Lutheran like you are and who's gone through classes like this before. The reason, I don't call it a new member class, I don't call it a confirmation class, I don't call it any of that, it's just the catechumenate because that incorporates everything all into one. It's just the teaching of the faith. And the way that we teach the faith also matters. So we are not gonna be teaching the faith just by opening up a textbook or following along uh, or looking at the catechism and asking about the synodical questions and answers in the catechism. 
And maybe this is blasphemous to say, but I really don't care about the synodical questions and answers because every time a new catechism comes out, they're completely different questions and answers. And sometimes uh, the answers to certain questions are different from one version to another. So things change, but what doesn't change is the actual text. So we'll look a little bit at the actual text, but the outline of this class really doesn't follow that. Uh, we teach the faith primarily through scriptural narrative. So you'll see as the lessons start going that what we do is we want to talk about uh, baptism, which is what we really, we sort of start it today at the end of class and then continue on into next week and then for the next couple weeks. But if we want to talk about baptism, where do we start? Well, we're not going to start by looking at the catechism and saying, what does the catechism say baptism is? We're going to go to scripture and say, what does scripture say baptism is? Where do we read about what baptism is? And how does the scripture inform what we as Christians believe about baptism and what we as Lutherans confess about baptism? And that highlights a distinction that I'm going to talk about in just a second. Uh, so, First of all, we'll be going through scriptural narrative to inform, inform us of Christian doctrine. And secondly, we're following the outline of the liturgy. Uh, so one of the neat things that we're going to do, since we're, we're rooted in the liturgy and we're steeped in the liturgy, uh, is that for all the new members, uh, we'll hopefully be purchasing hymnals. So every new household gets a hymnal to take back to their homes and have in their home for use for in private devotions, in singing hymns in the home, uh, that the faith doesn't end, be, begin and end with the doors of the church or with the beginning and ending of this class, but that the faith is rooted here in the liturgy and then extends its tendrils all the way out into the home and just continues from life in baptism until death. Um, so I have two then ways that this is organized, and you can, you can look at it here on the schedule. You can look at what we're going to talk about, and what's, I can guarantee you what's listed as the overarching subject uh, doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means, and you'll see that as we go on. Uh, what, what do we talk about when we talk about baptism? There's a lot there. There's a lot of things that fall under baptism. There's a lot of gifts that you get in baptism, and we're going to do our best to talk about all of that stuff. So uh, there's baptism, but then the liturgy correlation, that's the big one, because if we're following the structure of the liturgy from beginning to end, uh, which is going to help teach the faith, then uh, we have to cor correlate each lesson to the liturgy. So like today, uh, we're walking into church. What does it mean for you to walk into church? Because it means something from the time you walk in to the time you walk out. Something is happening here, whether or not someone's playing the organ or preaching or distributing the body and the blood. Something's happening here because this is a living and an active place. Uh, so it begins with walking in and walking out. And then you can see here, if you're familiar with the liturgy, that this really does follow the whole order. The invocation, confession and absolution, readings and the sermon, and also the creed is contained in there, the prayer of the church and other petitions, the Eucharist, the benediction, and then leaving the church. So everything ties in with scriptural narrative, which informs the beliefs, the teachings of the church, and also the liturgy, which confesses the beliefs and the teaching of the church and reinforces them into you every time you're here. This is one reason why we don't deviate from the liturgy, why, excuse me, the liturgy is such an important thing, because the liturgy is this entire class every single time you're here. Uh, which you'll hopefully see by the end of the class, how everything connects. Uh, so, I mentioned that there's a distinction that needs to be made between the confession of the, or the belief of the Christian faith and the confession of the Lutheran Church. And the reason for that is, uh, and, and this is definitely something that you don't hear in most Lutheran classes, I don't want you to be Lutheran first. Because if you identify yourself primarily as Lutheran, then you have even unwittingly separated yourself from the entire history of the Holy Catholic, Holy Christian Church. So what I want 
is for you to be Christian first and Christian primarily, believing the truths of the Christian faith and then confessing those truths as a Lutheran. So you have to understand what Christians believe before you can understand what Lutherans believe because if, if you just want to go and understand what Lutherans believe without any of the foundation of the historic Christian church, then you don't really know what Lutherans believe and your Lutheran faith is an empty one that's based only in history and tradition but not in historic teaching. So really <laughs> what I'm here to do for the period of this class is to uh, teach you to be a Christian first so that you can be a Lutheran the way that a Lutheran ought to be. And what ought a Lutheran to be? Well, we'll figure it out as we go along. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out. Slowly and surely, uh, we'll find out. So uh, just as one more piece of introduction, why is the class so long? It's not the longest class I've ever been a part of. I think the class that my home pastor did was, he calls that the didache. It's on Monday nights for an hour and a half, and I think that's something like 20 weeks. It's long. Uh, and the, the class that I, uh, I'm sort of modeling this class in part on that one and then on another one uh, by another pastor friend of mine, and his is only 12 weeks, so we're, closer to 12, about 13, 14, but why is it so long? Why can't we just do this in like, you know, three hour and a half long settings and call it, call it quits? Well, uh, <laughs> because for the people that want to join, you gotta date before you kiss. Uh, we have to go through this and get to know each other a little bit before we start getting more intimate. And in order to start getting to know each other in this kind of a setting, we have to really take the time to get deep down in it. And you can see on the schedule, this is already kind of rushed, even at 13, 14 weeks. We're covering the entirety of the liturgy, hopefully, all through scriptural narratives, but it also correlates with all of the six chief parts of the catechism. So we're really hitting all of this stuff in 13, 14 weeks, and uh, this is about the bare minimum of time that it's gonna take just to get even the most basic of basics in. So, you know, this is, this is why. Um, it's also my responsibility to make sure everybody here is on the same page, that everybody who's entering fellowship with this body uh, stands on the same ground. And the only way that I can do that is by making this the benchmark so that I know that everybody has at least one common experience of education in the faith that I know because I put it together and taught it. So, I, you know, I was saying even before we began that if you want to join this church, I'm happy. If you want to be a part of this community, I'm happy because I don't care about members as uh, names on pages. I don't care about the official bureaucracy of paperwork. I don't care that you have your synodical ID card that you can flash now and say, look at me, I've, I'm part of this body officially. I've got the bureaucratic stamp of approval. I care about pastoral care and I care about community. And those things are more important to me than the name on a page. But the community comes with membership. Pastoral care doesn't necessarily, but to be a part of the community is to submit to the pastoral care that's offered here. So I have the responsibility of taking care of people and even a lifelong Lutheran who's just taking this class for fun or a lifelong Lutheran who wants to join this church after moving or uh, leaving another one. I don't know what the benchmark is that you come from. I don't know your pastor. I don't know your history. I don't know what classes you have taken. I don't know what you retain. I don't know anything. And you can tell me all day what you know and what you went through, but it really doesn't mean anything to me because it's nothing substantive. Uh, so this is something substantive that, that we have then that is the benchmark. So I know what you know and you know who we are. Uh, who are we as the Lutheran Church? Who are we as Christian? Who are we as a community at Holy Trinity in Mount City? Because really that's what the congregation is, is it's, it's this big house church. It's this community here that 
gathers together and confesses in uh, same words. You know, that's the word to confess is uh, to same speak. Homo logeo, same word, same speak. That you're speaking together in one accord, but you're also speaking back the same words that God gives you. Um, so that's sort of the, the whole purpose of this. And this is kind of a long introduction, but it's a different kind of class. So I want to make sure everyone's on the same page. And, you know, our numbers are light today, but there are a, a number of people who couldn't be here but are planning to be here, and they're going to be listening to the recording on the podcast. So this all has to come out first so that, you know, I'm not going to hide anything about what this class is. <laughs> There's not going to be any surprises about the class content or organization. There will be surprises, just not... Uh, just in how things are worded and how things are taught. Uh, so, why then do we teach from the liturgy? That's the big question. Scriptural narrative certainly makes sense. Uh, who doesn't want to know why Christians believe what the Bible tells them to believe? So that makes sense, to go back to Scripture and say, well, Christ our Lord says, even Martin Luther does that in his catechism, well, why do we do this? Why do we believe this? Why is the sacrament this? Well, because Christ our Lord says, or St. Matthew in his gospel writes, or St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, blah, 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 so that everything ties back to the word of God. Uh, but the liturgy makes less sense, especially for somebody that's maybe not from the Lutheran tradition, but from a more... Uh, a more evangelical bent because the liturgy is something that doesn't really exist in those traditions. So why does it matter so much and why would we bother organizing an entire course around it and following its structure? Uh, well, because liturgy is life. Because, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but liturgy is life. Liturgy doesn't it isn't the organ playing, the pastor speaking, the beginning of service, the end of service. Liturgy doesn't begin with, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The invocation is not just pushing start to ignite the liturgy or pressing play on something that was stopped before. Liturgy is something that is ongoing. Uh, now, the divine liturgy of the church, the, the liturgy of word and sacrament in the divine service, uh, what we organize the class around, teaches the entirety of the faith. So the liturgy is ongoing in your home as you pray, as you teach, as you read, as you sing hymns, as you meditate, um, and then you come here and it's just a continuation even. Uh, but liturgy then itself we have to sort of define so we're all on the same page about what it is really that we're talking about. Uh, comes from the Greek, liturgia, uh, which means a public service. Um, but that's not the best translation of it because it's a, in, in the New Testament contexts and the early church contexts, the way that liturgia is used is really as a public service that is done for people, uh, for the benefit of the people that are gathered. One person that stands apart and that takes care of people. And uh, in this sense, it's really easy to look at it and say, oh, well, then that's pastor. <laughs> that the liturgy is about pastor being up front like the priest and that he then takes care of the people, which is absolutely wrong uh, because it's not about the pastor. And as this class goes on, this will become more and more apparent. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's always about Christ. It's always about the Lord and what he's doing for his people. Uh, it's why pastor wears vestments. It's not because... He wants to look pretty. Uh, it's because he's trying to cover himself up and confess that it's not him, but it's Christ. Um, who gives you the baptism? Who gives you the body and the blood? Uh, St. John Chrysostom says that uh, when the pastor distributes the body and the blood, it certainly is not the pastor delivering it, but it is Christ himself. Uh, so the pastor covers himself up because he's in a way only a facilitator through the office of the ministry he's permitted to facilitate in that stead, to stand in the place of Christ. But Christ will work through him, and Christ is the one that really delivers the goods. So if you're, if you're, looking, for, if you're looking for the goods, if you're looking for what you came here to get, it's not pastor to go to, it's Christ. The pastor will just facilitate. 
So uh, it's really the opus dei, which is, now we're going from Greek to Latin, the works of God. Uh, that liturgy is not really about us, it's about God coming to us. That's why it's called divine service, uh, because the divine is giving a service. He is the God who comes not to be served, but to serve. And that doesn't change after the ascension. When we gather together to worship, true worship has to be understood first as reception. True faith uh, receives with open arms uh, the thing that is being offered. So praise and thanksgiving always come, but they always come after. You can't say thank you uh, before the gift has been given. Someone comes to you, they give you the gift, and you say thank you in response after having received. Uh, so, um, liturgy is, in the sense of the divine service, is sort of the combination of a couple things. Uh, it's the combination of rite and ceremony. And these two things combine into how we conduct the liturgy here. So, the rite is the things that are said, and the ceremony is the things that are done. And the combination of things said and things done are what make a liturgy. So a liturgy, in a general sense, really can be anything. Uh, put your hands in the air as if you don't care. Well, there's words and there's action. There you go. That's a liturgy in a sense, according to the most broad definition. Uh, here, within the church, liturgy as a combination of rite and ceremony includes the texts of scripture and the texts of the church that are preserved and the teachings of the church that are then preserved in the liturgy. Why do we sing hymns? You know, well, because we want to learn. Because the hymns teach. Uh, the hymns are didactic in nature. They they, I talked about this just recently in Bible class. The most complex theological concepts are taken by hymn writers and made so simple that a child can understand them. Theologians are really notorious and egotistical in a way because they take these concepts that shouldn't be simple but then they elevate them and they make things way more complicated than they need to be. Uh, here's an example. How is it that Jesus is on the altar in a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine? <laughs> well, how, how many books have been written that attempt to explain away the mystery instead of the simplicity of the Christian faith that just says, I don't know. And it's okay that I don't know, because Christ our Lord says, this is how it is. It is. And when Christ says it is, that's enough for me to say, well, he knows better than I do, and the church knows better than I do. Uh, again, this is why we retain the liturgy. Nobody knows better than 2,000 years of church history, 52 times a year or more. The church continues to teach. The church is not the institution, but the preservation of the faith through time and space. Uh, so, we then have to talk about some of the characteristics of the liturgy that make it so important. First of all, liturgy is communal. Liturgy is never on your own. I don't really care about your personal relationship with Jesus. I'm glad that you have one, but that's not my go-to question. Oh, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, sure you do. Uh, if you've been baptized, then you definitely have a personal relationship with Jesus, and I care more about the baptism than the whole striving toward the personal relationship side. Sure, it makes you feel good, but it doesn't give you any substance. Yeah, okay, you've got a personal relationship with Jesus and that's fine, but the thing that matters is that your relationship is in no way private. When you're baptized, when you become a part of the church, you become a part of the body. You don't become another animal in a stall that has dividers and blinders so that you never see or interact with anybody else two, three, four, five, six stalls down from you. We're not a collection or a collective of individuals. We are one body with Christ our Lord as the head. So your, your faith is certainly a personal thing uh, because it is for you. Jesus comes for you. That's why when the Eucharist is distributed, it is the body of Christ given for you. Every single person gets the same message again and again and again and again. The body of Christ given for you. Because it's given for you as a collective, yes, but it's also given for you. And for you, and for you, and for you, 
as individuals. That's your personal relationship, that Christ comes to you as an individual and distributes his gifts to you personally as an individual. But he doesn't do it privately. He doesn't do it privately. He does it in, within the context of the communal nature of the church. Everyone together, the body gathering with Christ as the head, Christ guides and leads, gathers, preserves, strengthens and sanctifies all together as a group. Liturgy is ordered and it is normative. Uh, so what you don't get to do is look at the liturgy and decide, I don't really like the creed, so I'm going to change it. And there are a lot of churches that do that, uh, this so-called creative worship, where every week it's a different liturgy and the pastor's job during the week is to, quote, build the liturgy or design the liturgy. I've been to churches like that. I've interacted with churches like that. I've been asked to build liturgies for churches like that. And it doesn't work because then you're not really confessing the faith the way the faith is confessed. Uh, the oldest hymn in Christian history, do you know where it is? Any guesses? Not in Vespers, no. But it is in the liturgy. It is in our hymnal. The oldest known hymn, I'll say that, the oldest known hymn in the entirety of the Christian faith is in the liturgy. And it is in the liturgy of evening prayer. There's a hymn called the Phos Hilaron. And uh, it's right here on page 244 in the hymnal. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. This is the oldest known hymn, and it's contained in the liturgy. I was going to say the ninth minutes was the oldest known hymn. Well, okay. I, you got me. The, <laughs> but the oldest, the oldest known hymn that was composed and preserved from the early church. The ninth minutes is a great hymn, and that's one reason, you know, why we don't get rid of stuff, because that's actual scriptural text. Uh, if we want to talk about the oldest known hymn, it uh, goes even before the Nunc Dimittis, because there's things like the Song of Moses and the Song of the Three Young Men and uh, all of this stuff that goes back to the Old Testament canticles. So even there we have things that are older than the Phos Hilaron, but the Phos Hilaron of the actual uh, body that is the church uh, that is the oldest of those hymns. And it's, in, it's a part of the liturgy. Liturgy is ordered and it is normative. I don't have the authority to say, I hate the Gloria, I'm going to change these words of the Gloria. Because the Gloria text as we have it is exactly the same as it was when it was first used. Uh, the Kyrie, same. All of these texts of the liturgy, they're all the same. And the order of the liturgy is relatively the same as well. The structure uh, is the same. Now the setting of the liturgy is not always the same. Uh, you can look in the hymnal, there's five settings. I think that's too many, and I think a lot of them aren't very good. But there are different settings of the liturgy. So the music that you chant, the, you know, the chant tones, the music that you sing, how the Nunc Dimittis is sung, that is not what makes the liturgy. It adds to the liturgy, but it's the texts that are primary, even with hymnody. It's the texts that are primary. But the music is the way that the text is delivered. It's, it's a setting. Um, but think of it not just like setting as in a style, but setting as in what you place a gem into. So it's the thing that helps to emphasize the beauty of the gem that is being presented and that preserves it in a state of reverence, which is why we don't have praise bands or screens or happy clappy type business happening here because the liturgy is something we don't mess with, and there's a reverence that goes along with the liturgy because in the liturgy is the entire teachings of 2,000 years of church history and of scripture, of course, and the confession that what happens here is important and that God is doing something, that it isn't about us, it's about God. And if God really is here, and if God really is doing what we believe God is doing, then our worship ought to reflect that confession. There's a, a Latin phrase, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of faith. And really what that means is how you do things confesses what you believe. 
So if we act like nothing is going on, it doesn't really matter whether you believe something is going on. If you act like it, then you don't believe it. Because if you really believed, you'd act like you believed. Does that make sense? Um, liturgies conveys spiritual reality, which is sort of what we've talked about here. There are very real things that take place during the liturgy. Christ's body and blood truly are present, and the liturgy highlights that. In fact, the entire liturgy is geared toward the Eucharist. The entire thing is designed to point you to the Eucharist. Word and sacrament, those are the two parts of how we have the liturgy divided, but are they different? No. The word is Christ, the sacrament is Christ. The word is the spirit of Christ that directs you toward the body of Christ and where it is to be found. So everything directs you to the flesh of Jesus, and that is really one of the key points about what it means to be Christian, as confessed even in the liturgy. That Christians are obsessed with the flesh of Jesus, with the body of Jesus. That's why we retain it on the cross, because that's the flesh that was crucified, that's the flesh that won your salvation, right there, but that also confesses the resurrection, because that is the same flesh that rose, that appeared to the disciples, that had a hand of Thomas in the side and in a nail hole, and it is the same flesh that is on the altar for you as individuals and collectively as the body. And it is the same flesh, especially now during Advent we think about this, it is the same flesh that is coming again. When Christ comes, he's not going to be healed. He's not going to be looking like an angel. He's going to come in the flesh. And you, like Thomas, are going to be able to look at him and say, my Lord and my God, and you're going to be able to take his hand and hold it, and you're going to be able to put your finger into that nail hole and put your finger or hand into that wound in his side because they'll be there. That's that flesh. Uh, so we're obsessed with the body of Christ. Where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the flesh of Jesus to be found? Because in the flesh of Jesus is the entirety of the presence of God. So wherever that flesh is, that's where God is. And we want to be where God is. So that's just one example of one of the spiritual truths that the liturgy conveys. Just because of the fact that the liturgy builds up to it and leads you there. It says, hey, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bam, and we're off. And boy, have we got something for you today. We're off. You're in the building. The name has been invoked. Something real is going on right here. Come along with me and I'll show you what it is. You're going to get a great meal today. You're going to see the flesh of Jesus. That thing that you're looking for, it's right here and he can give it to you here. And follow along with us. We'll build up to it and you'll know what's happening. So even an outsider should be able to come to church and when they step through these doors, have a change in demeanor and attitude and say, hmm, something different is happening here. Something holy is here. It shouldn't be the same as outside. The moment that you cross the threshold, time stops to work the way it used to. Uh, cardinal directions don't work. We pray facing east. Well, this isn't east, this is west. Doesn't matter when you're in here, it's east. Because this place is a holy place and there are different truths and different realities here than there are anywhere else. So we, you know, in worship and practice, reflect that. Uh, and, and confess it. Now, liturgy is life. We talk about that. Liturgy gives you the entire truth of the Christian faith. 2,000 years of church history, 52 times a week, or uh, 52 times a year. 52 times a week would be glorious, but perhaps a little much. <laughs> I don't know that I'm quite up for that. 52 times a year. So you're getting the entirety of the church handed to you on a silver platter every single time you come here. It's rich. Uh, it gives you life. It's a return to baptism. It's the body and the blood, the food of immortality, the vaccination. Uh, the early church used to talk about it in terms of medicine. Luther talked about it like that too. Um, and he talked about how death is a, a pathogen and that the only medicine that will get rid of that pathogen 
is the Eucharist. We talk about it that way now in terms of like a vaccination, or at least I do. So you come to the doctor and you get your vaccination. There's a lot of diseases out there. Now, uh, every day is flu season when the flu is sin. So all the more important then, like your flu shot is important when that season comes, uh, all the more important is coming here to get the body and the blood, that spiritual medicine, that vaccination to fill you up and inoculate you against the evils of the world that are going to try and get in you and infect you. So liturgy is life. Everything that happens here is here to give you life. Okay? And it's transcendent. Liturgy isn't about what we do now. It's not about divine service setting three. Sorry, Lutherans. <laughs> That's the old historic Lutheran service from the English-speaking the Anglican Lutherans, um, back for a, for a long time we've had that service, but liturgy is transcendent. It's more than just setting three. It's more than setting five. It's, it's more than Luther's Deutsche Lieder Mass. It's more than the old Tridentine Mass. It's more than all of this. Liturgy is the, the words and the deeds of the church, that spiritual body joined to Christ from the beginning until the end, all through time and history. And like I said, there's different settings. Now we're using this setting, but the texts are the same, and the transcendental nature of the liturgy remains the same. So that we can say during the liturgy, with boldness and confidence, that we sing with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, lauding and magnifying your glorious name evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. That's transcendent. It isn't just you in the pews. It's not just the congregation of Holy Trinity. It's not just the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Missouri District. It's not just here in the United States. It's all over the world, through time, through space, through history. That's the liturgy, transcendent the voices of saints from long ago and with even voices of saints to come. Um, so there's a great quote here from Robert Zagor. When parishes cultivate a liturgical life, and I love that because it's a life. It's not just be a liturgical congregation, as in when you walk through those doors, you better stand when you're supposed to, sit when you're supposed to, you better cross yourself like you're supposed to. The liturgy is not about guilting you. There's, you're not supposed to do anything. It's all gift. You get to come here. You get to uh, receive. So it's a liturgical life. It doesn't begin and end here. It begins and ends there at the font. Liturgical life of prayer, of following the calendar of the church, uh, of singing the hymns of the church, here and at home, the readings, being a, a Christian, really. When parishes cultivate a liturgical life, they arm their sons and daughters with words ingrained with the gospel. They implant a resolute and joyous hope. Reinforced over a lifetime, they are unshakable even by death. Uh, many pastors will refuse to bring communion to members that struggle with dementia and Alzheimer's. I think that's a travesty. Their excuse is, well, I've talked to them and they can't confess the realities of the faith. I can't examine them. I can't ask them a rational question and receive a rational response. But faith isn't reason. And what receives the sacrament? Well, it is faith that receives. So when you want to give the sacrament, which is received by faith, why do you appeal to reason? Appeal to faith, and you will find faith. I sing the texts of the liturgy, and with the flip of a switch, these people understand what's going on, and you can see faith. Faith is not quantifiable. It's unseen. You can see faith. You can see it in the eyes. You can see it in the heart of the people who hear the preaching of the gospel in these texts that have been ingrained in them in such a way that they will never depart from them. 
that the gospel is always there in the liturgy and that when they return to the liturgy again and again and again, it continues to preach the gospel, which is good because that's what it's designed to do. <laughs> that's its whole thing, the setting whereby Christ is given. Okay, so uh, I've got some quotes here that we don't have time to go through and I think I've maybe handed these out in Bible class before. These are just things about why liturgy matters, why it's not a fleeting thing, why we continue to retain the liturgy. And I know I've gone through this with, uh, with you before too, uh, but this then leads us in uh, with all of this of the liturgy, all of this talk of the liturgy. Uh, we need to talk a little bit now about who you are. Because it sounds pretty good, right, to be a part of this body and to join in with this uh, great liturgy of the church and get all of the things that it's here to give. I want to have faith. How do I have that faith? How do I have the faith that receives like that uh, person with dementia and Alzheimer's that has the, light, the eyes that light up and the heart that sings when the liturgy is proclaimed and the gospel is there and Christ in his flesh is delivering his flesh to them? I want to be that. How do I do it? Well... Now then's where we enter the section called uh, The State of Man, <laughs> also titled Why You Cannot Make a Decision for Jesus. Uh, we have to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. That's what Julian said. Yeah, good. I'm glad somebody got it. <laughs> I said we're gonna, we gotta start at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Um, yeah, so uh, here's the problem now. You want to be a part of the liturgy. You want to be a part of the church, but you are dead. And this is really what I want to convince you of today. Because in order to lay the foundation for everything else that we have to talk about for the rest of this class, I have to convince you of one thing, and just one thing only today. And that is... You are dead. And that when you come to the church, you are made alive. But prior to that, you are nothing but dead. Uh, which ties into Scripture very well, really, because I say this all the time. There's only one story in the entirety of Scripture. It is death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. It's the only thing that scripture teaches. Again and again and again and again and again. Over and over and over again. Read the book of Judges and then tell me it's not about death and resurrection. Okay? Everything there is about death and resurrection. Why? Because everything in scripture is about Christ. And Christ is here for you who are dead. There's a great quote. I have it here. Um, by an Episcopalian priest, actually. Look, see, even a, you know... Even a blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be anything. You just have to be dead. That's it. Jesus comes to raise the dead. So, who are you then? <laughs> well, take a look at this. <clears throat> this is one of the first things that I handed out when I got here. <laughs> Excuse me, I got to take it. This is one of the first things I handed out. <clears throat> this is the... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay. This is the problem. And it says the problem of man's state, but you can supply me, mine, the problem of my state. You are that raccoon at the side of the road. And this is kind of a funny picture. What makes it funny? Why is it humorous? Now, this is the question that's going to give us the answer for the rest of class. What is the joke? Yeah, he's got a balloon that says get well soon, but he's not going to get well soon. Now, you already see uh, 
that this is making a theological point, right? Because uh, if he could get well soon, he would. But he can't, so he isn't. <laughs> well, this is you, okay? Uh, you know, the people that say, well, just, you know, get, get better. Be better. Well, you can't. So it's an unhelpful thing to say. Uh, you know, and, and especially for like, folks struggling with depression, the worst thing that you can say is, well, just get over it. Well, just get over it. You're, you're dead. No, just get over it. Okay, thanks. That's really helpful. Uh, I never thought of that. I definitely never would have tried to get over it if I were able to do that. Thanks. Okay? So this is the reality in, in, uh, in the world. This is the reality of man's state. Is If you could get better, if you could get well soon, if you could make yourself alive, you would. Definitely. But you can't. So you, will, you won't. You never will. Uh, so you begin at death. Square one for you is death. And as it happens, life begins at death, which we'll see in a minute here, uh, because Jesus comes to raise the dead. If you're, this is, now think, think about that quote too in uh, terms of what Jesus says to the Pharisees, like the 99 who need no repentance. If you don't really need repentance, then the shepherd doesn't need to stay with you, does he? Then Christ doesn't need to come to you. Oh, you're good on your own? Okay. I'm only here to forgive sins, so if you don't have any sins to forgive, I guess I can leave you alone. Takes on a whole new meaning. 99 who need no repentance. That's sort of an indictment. Uh, so the people who don't see their sin, who, who are dead but don't realize it, they think that they can make themselves alive, and they never will because there has to be an external acting force. So you have to be dead to be made alive. You have to be dead first to be raised. And luckily, that's where you are. So we go to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let's see. And you, he made alive. You who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You he made alive. You who once were dead. So now you start to see it. You were dead. How are you dead? Well, in trespasses and sin. And this is a really great verse because, see, in English, uh, this, is, this is a verse that loses quite a bit through the translation. Greek is uh, a very specific language. There's, for one word in English, uh, there are three or four or five or even six words in Greek that are all different characteristics of the one thing that we have. Like, love is an example. Now, you can tell your wife, I love you. You can tell your brother, I love you. Uh, and you can tell your son, I love you. And it's all different loves. You don't love your son the same way that you love your mother, and you don't, or your uh, wife, and you don't love your brother in the same way that you love your son. Or even your best friend, I love you. You tell your best friend that you love him. Well, it doesn't mean that you want to marry him and love him in the same way that you love your wife. So uh, how do we distinguish between the different kinds of loves? Well, we sort of know from context about the different kinds of love, but it all uses the same word. Greek has specific things. And here in Ephesians, Paul uses a word that is nekros. Uh, that's a root word from which we get things like necrotic. That is death. That is a deep, deep stage of death. Uh, the joke about this is that necros, if you're described as being necros, then not only are you this raccoon that's dead flat as a pancake uh, on the roadside, you're also that raccoon that's floating down the river, sort of puffed up like the balloon that's tied to him, 
that the little kids come and poke with a stick. That's how dead you are. So bloated and oozing that there is absolutely no hope. You're way too far gone. That's the word that's used here. Not recently dead, you're late. Rigor mortis has already set in. Uh, I will concede all of my intellect, worldly good, and status to the one person who can show me solid evidence of a person who, after dying and having rigor mortis set in, made the decision that they were going to get well soon, and then did it. So now you start to see, how are you going to make a decision for Jesus when you can't even pick yourself up off the side of the road? When you can't even pick yourself up off of that cold slab that you're laying on, bloated and puffy and oozing and oh so dead. Marley was dead. He was dead as a doornail. That's you. Dead as a doornail. Dead as a raccoon by the side of the road. So that's the problem. How do you make the decision for Jesus? That's why we don't talk about decisions for Jesus, because we don't care about decisions for Jesus, because they mean nothing. I couldn't care less if you made a decision for Jesus, because I'm too busy caring about the fact that Jesus made a decision for you. I don't care so much about the fact that you make the decision to come to Jesus because I'm too concerned about the fact that Jesus has already made the decision to come to you. So Paul rearranges the way that man has to think. You were dead. And what about this word? He made alive. Grammatically, what's important about that? That he made alive. It's a yeah, you didn't do it. So what kind of a verb is it? He, you were made alive. Mm, I forgot one in grammar, but it's passive. Yeah, it's a passive, okay? The passive verb is that which receives the action. It doesn't give the action. It doesn't say, and you made yourself alive because you were dead in trespasses and sins, but had enough cognitive reason left in your rotting bones to be able to say, you know what? Hop on up there, body. Not quite. <laughs> yeah, not quite dead. No, you're uh, pretty dead. Necros. Bloated. Rigor mortis. You are absolutely beyond the hope of resuscitation. And uh, he made you alive. You received Jesus. So uh, you are dead, so you can't make yourself better. You have to have the action of another, the external touch of another. And that's really a big thing, this external touch. Why? Because that's the gospel. Uh, I talked earlier at the beginning of this class about theologians making things overly complicated. And you can go into my office and you can look at a whole bunch of books and I could recommend you some books if you want to see what theology looks like when it gets complicated. You can borrow it, you can sit at home and you can try and read it and I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to get through it. And why can I guarantee that? Because some of those books I have trouble getting. Yeah, having the faith of a child, which is great. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time to talk about all of the reasons why that's great, because I love it. And I, actually, I've been thinking a lot about that recently, uh, just when you look at a child and you think, well, what does Jesus really mean when he's talking? What is the characteristic of a child? And adults really are not so great. <laughs> adults have a lot of problems that children don't have. Jesus has on to something, I think. I think he knows what he's talking about when he says that you've got to be like a little child. Uh, so I'm not going to fight him on that. But yeah, absolutely, you have to be like a little child. You're dead. You have to be made alive. You have to have the touch of another. You can't do it on your own. And this is the gospel. You, you have to be able to understand the faith because really, the faith is, faith is pretty simple. You know, uh, I can ask questions like, What's, what does it mean to be justified? What does justification mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does any of this stuff mean? Well, 
All of this is part of what this class is here to do. It's to take these things that are complicated, needlessly so, and make them simple. And here's lesson one about this. The gospel is nothing more than the touch of Jesus and the means by which the touch of Jesus is delivered. And that's it. And you can look all through scripture when you look at, well, what is the gospel? Where's the gospel? Where the touch of Jesus is and where the touch of Jesus is delivered. That's the gospel. So you require the gospel because you're dead. And the gospel is the touch of Christ who's going to come to you and raise you, speak a word to you, give you a word, give you a flesh, give you a touch. All of this. You know, and, and this is even, we'll talk about this later on in the class when we talk about what the word is. But um, the way that we Lutherans uh, and many of the evangelical groups understand what the word is and, and what preaching is, it's completely wrong. When we say things like, this is the word of the Lord, most people don't actually understand what we're saying. We're not saying that what's written here, these letters, are the Lord's letters. No, they are. But that's not really the biggest point of what we're saying. That's not the point of what we're saying when we say that there's a service of word and a service of sacrament. That there's a service of readings and then a service where Jesus is there. As if Jesus isn't there in the service of the word. That preaching is understood as a lecture. Pastor's going to sit in his office all week and he's going to type up some words. And, uh, and he's going to type up enough words so that it's meaningful and he's going to hit us with what we need to hear and, and he's going to explain the text to us and then we're going to sit and we're going to hmm, yeah, ponder and consider the lecture and have it be something that's going to strengthen our faith because we use our reason to comprehend. That's wrong. It is so wrong. That the word is the presence of Jesus. That even the word is the touch of Christ. And here's why. Even scientifically you can see this. That when I speak, how is it that you, how is it that you understand what I'm speaking? How is it that your ears hear? Because my voice is actually traveling across to you and going into your ears and grabbing your eardrum and going like this and shaking it. And your brain says, oh, this guy's shaking my eardrums. Let me tell this rest of this body here what it's saying. That there's a touch involved even in speech because there's a breath. That when, you know, when Jesus breathes on his disciples, he doesn't just line them all up and give them his morning halitosis. It's all in the speech. It's all in the word. That the words that are spoken, the spirit of Christ, born by the breath. And everything is there. That, that's the, it, to me, that's the uh, allure, I guess you could say, of Christianity, is that what is so complicated is so simple. Yeah. And what is so simple is so complicated. <laughs> yeah. But see, the great thing about being a Christian, which is not to say that, that we shouldn't think about these matters, but the great thing about being a Christian is that you get to acknowledge, yeah, there are some mysteries. You don't, <coughs> excuse me, you don't have to be a scientist when you're a Christian. Uh, you can just say, yeah, I don't understand this. And you know what? That's fine that I don't understand it. <laughs> the church will keep working on you. The word will keep working on you. And you'll have a faith that will grow. Certainly your faith will grow the, your entire life. Uh, but you'll, there are some things you'll never understand. And in one of the ways that your faith grows is just to further accept the fact that you can't understand certain things and that you, you gain a deeper understanding of the thing by not understanding it. Yes? The breath of God is you make that, and I think, Pentecost. Yeah. That, that was the breath, that, that wind, or whatever, that was the breath of God. Right, and that's good that there's the breath of God in the wind of the Spirit that comes on Pentecost. But here's the question. Here's the question. We'll see how well you remember. <laughs> Who receives and sees the breath of the Spirit? To whom does it come on Pentecost? Well, there's, there's either the people preaching to the languages or the people receiving it, both maybe. Well, you're on the right track. The initial gust of wind, the miraculous blowing of the wind, that's what I'm on about first. 
That came to the speakers to speak the languages. Yeah, okay. The breath of the Spirit, when Christ sends, says, I will send you the helper, the Spirit of Christ comes to the apostles. Mm -hmm. Who sees the tongues of flame? Not the people. That's a common misconception. The apostles see tongues of flame, but the people don't see. The Spirit rests yeah. upon the apostles. The breath is blown and given to the apostles, those whom Christ has ordained and put into his office. And the Spirit continues to breathe by the preaching of the word. The people think that the apostles are drunk, not because they see that they have flames on their heads, but because of what they're speaking. A guy that died and rose again, you're drunk. But the gospel is preached. The breath of the Spirit continues. Christ ascends, and he has to ascend, so that his voice and his spirit are pro continue to proclaim across the entire world. He ascends, and through the office of the Holy Ministry, through the liturgy, it's like he's now speaking in a megaphone. Everywhere, through the office, through the liturgy, the Spirit of Christ is proclaiming the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is big, important stuff. So what's the solution then? You know, we're dead. Here it is. This is, uh, I love this. This is from an inscription on the wall, uh, one of the walls in the St. Paul Monastery at Mount Athos. But if you die before you die, then you will not die when you die. That's the solution. Are you dead? You are. Great, have I got an offer for you? Okay, you're dead, but first you gotta die, and then when you die, it's okay, because you're not gonna die when you die, you who are dead. <laughs> it's kind of weird and kind of convoluted, but if you start to think about it, it makes sense, okay? Kind of like Paul's, I do what I shouldn't do, and I yeah. do what I shouldn't do, and Yeah, so if you die, before you die, then you will not die when you die. And we're going to unpack this more as we start talking about baptism. But this is, you know, this is the thing. Jesus comes to raise the dead. Uh, when you're raised from the dead, when you come to baptism, you're killed. Um, we'll talk more about this later. But, you know, the old Adam is drowned. That's what the catechism says. There's death involved in baptism. There's death for the person who is dead so that the person can be made alive. And it's not a life that is lived only once, it's a life that is lived for eternity, so Christians can die in comfort and in peace in the knowledge of the fact that they've already died. You have to die before you can live. Yeah, death, life comes at death. Life comes at death. And, we'll see uh, through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Yeah, yeah. See, so death isn't what it is. Death isn't, or at least not what it appears to be. Uh, which is why Christians can, we have the hope of the resurrection, we have the hope of Christ coming, and we can say things like, well, he slumbers in the faith now. And that's okay. Yeah. A little bit ago you were talking about the faith of a child. Uh -huh. And I, in my head, composed sermon or holiday or whatever. But anyway, tried to express faith. And you touched on what I thought about uh, the faith of a little child that you occasionally see, and I don't go near a swimming pool, but a, a parent in a pool, the child standing on the edge of the pool, and the parent says, jump, and the child will jump into the parent's arms because the child knows that the parent's not gonna let him drown in the pool. Mm -hmm. And that that's what, that's what faith is, is knowing that Jesus is not going to let you drown in your sin through faith that he's going to, he's going to catch you when you fall. Am I making myself clear? Yeah, you are. And, and actually, we, uh, there's a whole lesson here we're going to talk about what faith is yeah. and what it is not. And uh, Luther has a great quote. Uh, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's word so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times which I love. So yeah, this is it. This is now the beginning. This is the beginning. You are a dead raccoon. You are Marley, dead as a doornail. You are Necros. 
and you require the aid of another. You require the passivity that receives. You don't get to make the decision for Jesus, but Jesus sure is going to make the decision for you. And he is the one who's going to come to you with his touch in word and in sacrament. He's going to give you his flesh. He's going to give you his sacraments, baptism. He's going to touch you. He's going to make you alive. He's going to make you, transform you into something you weren't before. He's going to bring you into the body because in the body, this is the place where there's life so that you can live even though you will die and that even though you die, you live. So what is baptism? That'll be next time. We'll start getting into how this all works, the intricacies of how the touch of Jesus comes, how it is delivered, how it works on you, and what it really does. Luther said it's not simple water. Yeah, it is not simple water. <laughs> I remember that from the <laughs> Yes. What he said is not water simple. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.